0: That would be brilliant throughout the show and afterwards. But first things first, I'd like to welcome my co-host, Karen Van Sweden.
1: Good evening, William.
0: Hello, how are you doing?
1: I'm good. Yeah. Big news today in the northeast of Scotland, and that is there has been a rejection of the bid for the carbon capture and storage um, in the northeast in St. Fergus. So um, yeah, that's the really big news today. So um, I immediately tweeted that, um, you know, I put the, I put the article up on my uh, Twitter uh, uh, feed and said, "Well, would would anyone like um, uh, fiscal and monetary sovereignty?" <laughs> and that seemed to go down quite well on Twitter. Um, I would guess with the independence community. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. No, it, it has it has been really interesting. And I know you've got a, a unique take on this because the North East is obviously struggling to comprehend this decision, but very kind of locally to you, this is actually seen as quite a good thing, isn't it? Do you want to kind of explain how that works?
1: Well, there is uh, a move towards a um, building over uh, a park in an area called Torrey, um, so I'm, I'm involved with that. I've gotten involved with the activists there. And for them, this has given them a little bit of time um, to work out what they're going to do, because the, the, the problem with the energy transition zone is it's proposing to build over the top of this. It's actually a nature reserve. And um, so it's a really special place and we want to preserve it.
0: Yeah, so that is an interesting take then. Um, what I wanted to do was just kind of talk about this as an example of the situation which is possibly going to happen when Scotland's independent. And I kind of wanted to talk through a couple of scenarios. And scenario one is that the idea that Scotland, an independent Scotland, it's not monetary sovereign. So it continues with using the sterling up to maybe 10 years as the Sustainable Growth Commission. But I'd also like the viewers to think about Scotland using the euro because it's exactly the same. We're, we're living as a currency user and not a currency issuer. So that's scenario one. And then scenario two was how would we do all this green infrastructure if we were monetary sovereign? So um, the, 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 first, the first way to look at it is that um, if the Scottish government as an independent country wanted to create more green infrastructure. They had three choices, really. This is if they're not monetary sovereign. The first one is to cut government spending in other areas. Okay, Now, that's not particularly popular. And obviously, if you think about it, government spending disproportionately goes to people who are the most disadvantaged in society. So that's not really something that anyone, certainly people who would create a new Scotland would want to see happen. Now, the second thing that we could do is raise taxes. Now, if there's one way to sink a government, and if there's one way to think of an independent, a brand new small independent country, it's to see a big increase in taxation. So we wouldn't be doing that. Now, the third option is that we would have to borrow. But we would have to borrow in a foreign currency. And that could be borrowing in dollars or yen or euros or sterling. But we'd have to borrow that and we would have to pay it back. And we would obviously have to pay back more than we borrowed. And the other thing, and Fidel Cabood has mentioned this to us, now we've spoken to him a couple of times, is that, When you start owing debt in a foreign currency, your whole economy starts to shift and it starts to focus on ways to generate revenue in the currency that you owe a debt in. So Scotland would already kind of start moving away from the sovereignty that we would hope it had because the economy would have to shift slightly. Now, these are the only three ways that a country that's not monetary sovereign can come up with a lot of money to pay for green infrastructure. So that's scenario one. Now, scenario two is Scotland as a monetary sovereign country. And this means it has a, a, an amount of money, not a finite amount of money because it's, it's our money, we're printing it. Um, different from using someone else's currency because you only have a finite amount because they've given you a certain amount of money. So we would have money, we would be able to pay for whatever we wanted using the Scottish currency. We wouldn't have to stop spending on other areas, we wouldn't have to raise taxes. And we wouldn't have to borrow in a foreign currency because we would have a fourth option, which is effectively deficit spending, which is spending the money in our own currency and being able to do, and we can do it, what we want with that money up until a point where that money starts causing a problem and it leads into inflation. So Kieran and I would both really like you to think about those two scenarios. And we're going to come back to this because this is a perfect example of how life is different as an independent country with monetary sovereignty, or using uh, someone else's money as a, a as a, a user of a currency, Kieran, does that sound about fair? Painting those two scenarios like that.
1: Yeah, I think it's important to also point out to the listeners as well um, that it's it's really down to real resources. You know, we have the people ready to do this work in this area; they're ready to go. And it's just a matter of money to pay them um, to make it happen. So if you have those real resources in in place and you just don't have the currency to pay them to do it, that's the problem. And if we were monetarily sovereign, we would be able to pay them to get cracking with this project. If that was the choice of the the, the Scottish people, if that's what the, the choice that the government that they had voted in chose to do. So um, it's it's really about real resources. The currency is just a, a way of moving those real resources around, um, paying those real resources, which is in this case human resources that are standing ready to go. Mm. Um, and and it's it's if the real resources are in place, it is just tragic that we cannot go forward with projects like this um, because there's just no currency to pay the workers
0: yeah absolutely and and that's a really important point that we want everyone to take away is that the currency is so much more than just the shape of it color of it or the little symbol that's in it and when people say to you currency's not important it is fundamentally Possibly singularly the most important thing to an independent country, if it has monetary sovereignty or not. So that's a little bit of an introduction into some of the wonderful things that we've got coming up. Karen, do you want to tell us a little bit about the show we're just about to, well, the video that we're just about to show?
1: So I'm very happy to say that um we have Laurie McFarlane as our guest um, this week, and he's actually our first Scottish economist. And oh my goodness, don't Scottish people talk fast? I I listened to him this afternoon and. This is a really um, information-dense interview. So um, Laurie is a research associate at uh, University College London at the Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose. And Laurie is a co-author of the book Rethinking the Economics of Land and Housing, which was listed by the Financial Times as one of the best best economic books of 2017. So with great pleasure, I introduce um, Laurie McFarlane
0: well first of all lauren mcfarlane thanks very much for joining us on Scotonomics.
2: great to be here thanks for having me
0: so, Laurie, the first question I want to ask you is actually a question in your book. Why are house prices in advanced economies rising faster than incomes and growth in the economy?
2: Thanks. Um, yeah, it's a very good question. Um, and it's one of the questions that I think is, should be at the forefront of, of all our minds at, at the moment. Um, so there's a number of things going on here. But first, I think we should dispel a, a myth that is quite common to hear a, among politicians and in the media, and that's that House price, house price, rising house prices are mainly a function of supply. So we've not built enough homes and therefore the price has gone up. And that's quite a compelling argument. You you think it holds with most things, but when it comes to housing, for the most part, that's not really what, what this has been about. So if we go back in time, let's say over the course of the past sort of 40, 50 years, this is when the housing market has been quite radically transformed in this country and abroad. And if you look at what's happened, First of all, housing's become far more attractive as a financial asset. Uh, And the reason for that, there's lots of different reasons, but for example, in the UK, we had taxes on property quite significantly reduced beginning in the 1960s, when the capital gains tax regime was introduced. Uh, Housing primary residencies was made exempt, which is unique uh, compared to other assets that automatically puts it at an advantage. Housing also became, home ownership also became far more attractive compared to other forms of tenure, uh, mainly because we basically stopped building uh, council housing uh, and sold off most of the stock. Uh, But we also deregulated the private rented sector and abolished rent controls. And that meant that private renting, although it began to really quite explode, it became a very precarious uh, way to, to, to live and really the only way of getting secure housing was to enter the housing market, whereas previous years, decades gone by, you could get secure, affordable housing through council housing, through social housing. So that that's one part of it, these kind of shifts. But probably the most significant one that's often overlooked uh, is around financial deregulation. Um, and so when we think about what it takes to buy a house, it's not just about how much your income is or how much savings you have. It's also about how much uh, the bank is able and willing to lend to you. And it used to be the case gone by after the Second World War. It was mainly done by building societies, which were mutually owned, um, quite conservative organizations. You used to have to, to to save a lot of money and they'd be able to, to lend you money only under very certain conditions. And they'd only be allowed to lend you so much. Um, and we saw the the following the Big Bang in the UK and the massive deregulation that took place, both before, but particularly during Thatcher, uh, banks basically were able to extend far more credit into the economy than they were before. And they were incentivized to become big, big players in the mortgage market. Uh, And so the idea, the textbook role of what banks do is that they take money from savers and then they lend it to businesses for productive investment. And that's just basically completely not true at all in the 21st century. What banks uh, actually do is... When they, cre- when they lend uh, money, they actually create new deposits in the process of lending. And so they actually do, they don't really lend to businesses anymore. It's not really that profitable for them. It's quite high risk. And so what, what, what we've seen is this uh, explosion in mortgage credit over the course of the past three, four decades. Um, and of course that's meant that there's been a flood of new credit hitting the housing market into something that's been relatively static in supply. But we've seen this huge flood of mortgage credit. And we've had this sort of feedback loop uh, create between, on the one hand, people taking out larger mortgages, that more purchasing power entering the housing market, then pushing up prices, that then meaning people need to take out even larger mortgages to get a a foot on the housing ladder, meaning people have more debt, meaning house prices go up further. And this sort of feedback loop basically sort of going on and on, that's really sort of pumped up, fueled uh, house prices in this country and elsewhere. At the same time, of course, we've had uh, interest rates uh, falling quite dramatically over the course of recent decades, which has also uh, also pr- pushed up house prices quite significantly in this country and elsewhere. Of course, global low interest rates is at the moment not just a UK phenomenon; it's it's a bit of a global one. So yeah, we've seen we've seen this comp this sort of financial drivers of the of the of the house price boom has uh, really been the most significant contributing factor to, uh, to 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 growing house prices and of course, as soon as you have this expectation that house prices are increasing at this fast pace you know double digit house price growth it creates an expectation that that's going to continue in the future. And it incentivizes people more to invest in property and invest in housing as opposed to invest in other things, because you're getting a better return doing that than you are in other things. And so um, people have got this idea in their head that they need to get on the property ladder because it's, that's their nest egg for the future. We've also seen a dramatic erosion of pensions in the background, which made people think even more about housing. Uh, And so we've gotten this situation really, which is where um, housing uh, because of the dramatic explosion in house prices, housing has become the sort of primary, uh, primary, far more than three quarters of that has come from rising house prices. You know, it's not come from, you know, investment, innovation, entrepreneurialism, all this stuff that, that the government likes to talk about. It's basically the price of a house going up. And really it's the price of the land underneath the house that's driving that. And so when you think about it, nothing actually new and tangible is being produced. We're just seeing the price of land go up that makes an individual welfare, but it doesn't make society as a whole any welfare because that then has a cost that has to be borne either when that person sells the house and somebody needs to then pay more for it, or if they're going to rent it out, somebody will pay the, pay the price in higher rents. And so this sort of housing ex- price explosion that we've seen, uh, it really is a bit of a zero sum game where we've seen this enormous wealth accumulated by one group of people coming at the expense of this growing minority of people who've been completely locked out from that, who are now paying extraordinary sums in rents, or who are having to save up you know, unrealistic amounts to put
0: down a, a very large deposit to even have a chance
2: of getting on housing.
0: Ladder. And, and capitalism isn't supposed to work like that. The gains are supposed to come from productivity. So we're supposed to be growing our economy because we're getting better at doing things. But what you're saying is our economy is growing because the price of land is going up, but there's no added value added to that growth in the economy. Is that a, a fair summary?
2: It is, yeah. I mean, we've seen, I mean, the UK, more than most any major country I anyway, mean, is really a prime example of a of a of a sort of ronte economy where rent extraction is the sort of primary mode of wealth accumulation. People are getting wealth and uh, wealthy through extractive forms of of, of activities like landlordism or homeownership you know that that is when you're getting wealthy through homeownership that is not a, you know like you say it's not increasing productivity it's a pure net it's a pure zero sum game and we see this in other areas of the uk economy as well like like the financial sector for example again another very strong area is rent extraction partly making it through house price inflation because you know as we say, as we said banks extending large mortgages making lots of their money through mortgage lending and through by extension through land and house price inflation and so uh, that's very much the case. The UK is 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 really the sort of uh, the world leader when it comes to sort of uh, having an economy based on
1: on rent. To the, to the chase with it, you know, you're not you're not producing anything. Pro- well, you're not doing anything productive.
0: The second part of your question in in your book is um, because you, you've just highlighted all of the problems there. It's growth not linked to productivity. Um, it's a zero sum game. So. It, a natural extension of that would to, would to be that politicians want to do something about it. So the question you ask in your book was, why don't politicians or policymakers want or allow house prices to fall? Again, yeah, it's a very good question. And I think here we, we really need
2: to get into the depths of, well, what's the sort of political economy of the housing crisis? You know, what who, where are the sort of balance of power here? Um, and really, when you think about it, there's, a, there's a, an unholy alliance, really, of, quite powerful interests of uh, those who are doing very well out of the status quo. Now, that includes banks, as I mentioned, who are, you know, if house prices are rising, they're happy, they're making lots of money. It includes developers, private developers, who, again, are making money from rising house prices. Um, But crucially, it also includes ordinary homeowners. And when you're in a, a country like ours, where still the majority of the electorate are homeowners so the uk and scotland it's about 60 63 percent of households are homeowning households uh, and and that's because that's been a political project you know to, to drive that up it it increased way beyond that and then since house prices have just got so high it's been falling for the last sort of uh, 10 10 years plus but it's still a majority of households and so we're in a bit of a bind because on the one hand housing is has generated a lot of wealth for Homeowners, they are the majority of the population. For many of these households, that is the you know the, the bulk of their own wealth is tied up in their house, and so uh, you know any any sort of politicians coming in are they going to want to do something that's going to actually undermine the wealth of the majority of the population? The other complicating factor comes back to the links to the financial system because we have a situation now where basically the the whole UK banking system uh, is is effectively uh, lent against. Real estate prices in the UK, because mortgage lending is is the main thing that they do. It also creates a big, very big financial risk because if house prices were to tumble very quickly, that could have some quite significant, uh, damaging impacts on the banking system. You know, create various types of financial instability and, and 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 another potentially another banking crisis if it was severe enough. And so, if you're a politician, you're thinking, okay, I want to get, the, I want to speak to the majority of the electorate. Therefore, I have to pander to homeowner interests. At the same time, I really don't want to cause, you know, uh, an economic or or even look like I might sort of cause a a financial crisis. Uh, And so it's very easy to see why politicians have done what they've done, which is basically pander to homeowner interests, pander to the banks, completely ignore the interests of private renters uh, and and at least until recently, in Scotland, Scotland's been a bit better than the UK, uh, not doing off on on social housing as well. And so, when you look at the balance where this sort of balance of power lies in this country, uh, it, it becomes a bit easier to understand why politicians aren't doing anything about this.
0: Okay. And no one wants to be in charge when the, they have to burst that bubble, and that 's what seems to be the case is that everyone knows that price that prices of housing can 't just keep rising and rising, but you 'd have to be a brave or or foolish politician or both to actually try and do something about it again you've you 've spoken about um, politicians not wanting to do anything to to, to bring down uh, house prices substantially quickly, but surely by building more homes is a, a more transitional way to provide more supply and gradually reduce the amount of uh, house inflation. Is that something we should be moving towards?
2: I mean, I, I think there is a need to build I'm in favour of building more housing, but it's 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 kind of a, it's not really going to do much on the house price issue. I mean, even the government's own figures
1: acknowledge it. I mean,
2: for, to, in terms of new supply, because new builds make up such a small proportion of the overall housing, housing stock, housing is a kind of a weird uh, asset in the economy because it's the second-hand market that dominates prices. Usually, in most things, it's the price of new things that, that you're talking about prices, not the second-hand market, but housing is the second-hand market. Because even if you build, you need to build on an enormous, like a giant, an unbelievable scale for it to start to even have prices come down by, you know, five, 10 percent, which is still not that much. Now, in my view, I think we should be building more houses and we should be building more affordable houses that are actually affordable uh, in places where people want to live. Um, but at the same time, that's we also need to be taking, taking steps to, to sort of, as you put it, you know, not crash the housing market overnight because at the end of the day that's only going to cause a, a, a quite a significant economic crisis probably and when that happens it tends to be those who can afford at least to suffer the most and so I have a long-term strategic plan which says look because of the decades of completely irresponsible management of, of housing policy we're in a really bad place we need to get to a situation over the next 10-15 years that really brings the housing situation under control that's not going to happen overnight we're not we don't intend to try and crash house prices but what we're going to do is gradually move towards a world where houses are you know seen as somewhere to live not as financial assets where there's huge amounts of money to be made and that means that over a course period of time we're going to be making changes to the tax system to make sure that there's you know not as much easy money to be made out, out of the property market we're going to be looking at uh, the mortgage market to to try and uh, you know basically redirect Bank lending, so it's not so much to f- just flowing into the property market, but it's actually getting them to invest in the real economy productively rather than doing that. We're going to be looking at the way the, the remit of the central bank, because central banks basically historically have really ignored house price inflation and only focused on consumer price inflation, which obviously misses a, a whole a whole part of the story. We're going to bring the rental, the private rental market, into much tighter regulation. Um, we're going to have much more secure tenancies. We're going to potentially look at things like rent controls as well. All of these different things together, whether it's tax, whether it's uh, financial regulation, whether it's reform of the private rented sector, uh, and indeed on new supply, uh, building new homes that where people want them that are affordable, all of these things together over time will sort of come, you know, gradually sort of move to a position where, where uh, you know, we're not in this crazy world. But crucially, it's about setting expectations, because at the moment, because people have grown up in this world where... House prices have just a, have council tax, which is everyone agrees is one of the worst taxes. It is a tax on property, but it 's based on what the values were in one thousand nine hundred and ninety one uh, before the big property boom even happened uh, and it 's very very regressive and so we should absolutely be abolishing council tax, introducing either a pure land value tax or an or a progressive property tax that taxes land and the, and the buildings in a way that's actually progressive and reflects contemporary house prices and is updated on a regular basis that that's an absolute no-brainer there's no we can't blame Westminster for that we have full autonomy over that and we just time and time again failed to do that so that that's a big thing we don't have control over things like capital gains tax that's still reserved we do have control over uh uh, land and buildings transaction tax which is what used to be stamp duty um, which which has been made a little bit more progressive, but probably could could more could be done there. Um, in the private rented sector, of course, we could do a lot. We already have seen some changes there. We've now seen the Scottish government and uh, along with the Greens commit to rent controls. I think it'd be really interesting to see how that how that if that happens and if it does, what that looks like because that has you know if done well, that could be incredibly powerful. done badly or just done in a way that kind of doesn't really you know dilutes it it'd be a missed opportunity so again all these things that the scottish government can do obviously what it can't do is when you're in the sort of macroeconomic or financial policy space you know it it, scotland doesn't have much influence over the bank of england at the moment unfortunately um and similarly when it comes to things like uh you know banking regulation and you know what trying to try talking about what i was saying about the mortgage market there's very limited stuff that the Scottish government can do there uh, but it's not an excuse for for an action there's plenty that that, that we could be doing um, and aren't at the moment and so yeah I think we should be focusing in this parliament about making some real progress here. So
1: Laurie I read your article for um, Jacobin magazine the unmaking of the British working class and it was a painful journey for me to read through it to really get the detail laid out um chronologically as to what has happened in the housing market in this country since I was a teenager in the early 1980s. Possibly what's really important for our audience to understand, and this is near the bottom of your article, is that it's so important what infrastructure you have around property and how the whole community um, actually um, uh, empowers a, someone who owns property to gain more from that property. So, for example, quite recently, um, I was involved in the Save Leith Walk campaign, and it was very clear that when that that property was going to be taken over, the um, you know simply through planning permission you know, a, a landlord suddenly gains a massive amount of money, S- centralization of building infrastructure around certain areas. And I see this happening to a certain extent in Scotland as well. You know, I think, uh, do you want to say something more about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean, one of the things that's, you know, unique in many ways about, uh, you know, the land market generally, and obviously, that includes housing includes other things is that, uh, it's inherently there's, there's a very much the, the value of it is inherently socially driven. So, you know, the value of a, of a plot land, you know, in, in the middle of a you know desert is worth nothing. But you know, build a, a train station there, you know, a, a university there, you know, lots of uh, housing, shops, cafes, theaters, all the rest of it suddenly becomes quite valuable. Even though the owner of that piece of land could have just been, you know, living somewhere else for that thirty years, come back, find himself you know, a millionaire. Uh, and certainly you know throughout history the debates of of land reform that principle about well who should actually be able to capture the uplift and the value of land that's socially created who should get that and of course planning permission is a vital part of that here and planning is something that's fully devolved which i should have mentioned before which we could do more of Um, and that that question who should capture the uplift in, in the value of land has been absolutely crucial absolutely core at the center of land reform debates and that basically got kind of lost. It was very, even right up until um, in, in Scotland and, and in the UK, right up until, the, you know, through the 50s, 60s, 70s, that was very much there. And it all just completely went by the wayside. And basically, there was this acceptance, basically, that actually, OK, the uplifts and the value of land, whether that's from planning permission or whether that's just from stuff generally, that should just accrue to whoever the owner is. And and we've created a policy environment where that's basically the default option. Uh, and I think that, that that's a, it's not really right. But, it, you know, as we talked about, it's not really economically efficient either to have such huge wealth to be made just through, uh, you know, rising land values. And so looking at ways in which we can capture more of the rising land values for, you know, the community, for, for the common good rather than for private gain is absolutely part of the part of the solutions here. And partly that's about tax. I mentioned Looking at a land value tax, which would do that. Partly, it's about planning uh, reforming the planning system so that we're not that when planning permission is granted, you know the public is capturing more of that uplift rather than right now where most of it's going to going to the state. And so there's lots of things that, that we could be doing here, but reinstating that general principle about you know rising land values being uh, you know a common a common good that everyone should be able to to to, to share in and should be socialized to some extent. Regaining that as part of the the policy discussion, I think is vital because that's just, as I said in in the UK context, that's just completely been lost over the course of the four decades, and that's that's partly why we've ended up in the in the in the serious housing crisis that we're in.
1: We're losing communitarianism through the acquirement of property, but also that um, through financialization, both of property and things like the pensions market, etc., you're losing skill sets. Um, and I, I, I saw that very acutely with um, someone who was doing a PhD in brain science who left that because they could make more money. Um, running uh, cleaners to do airbnb in edinburgh so you know you're you're losing you're having a brain drain essentially through um over financialization do you think that if we were doing things differently this would give us a much more productive more interesting economy and more robust through its through having more variety
2: I think it definitely would. I mean, I mean, at the moment, because of because of the way that we've structured our economy, which is so geared, so biased towards property, towards real estate, um, what what people do generally, if if they ever get money or, or or make money, is generally plow large amounts of that into the property market, into already existing assets, uh, which which you know, as we've talked about, only adds to to house price inflation. So the property market sucks up an enormous amount of the actual available. uh, invest available capital for investment here for something that is largely you know unproductive and isn't really adding any real value added to the economy and so creating an environment where you know we're redirecting these financial flows away from property that's on the one hand it's going to help uh you know sort of deflate the housing market or at least make it not so financialized um but on the other hand that that then frees up money to you know to do other things with and i think Part of the challenge is how do we how do we think, how do we sort of rewire financial flows in our economy away from real estate, away from these unproductive already existing assets. And to some extent, things like you know, shares actually, basically when you're investing in shares, unless it's an initial public offering, you're basically just buying an already existing share that's been issued, uh, that's just pa- passing paper around. So instead of that, well, how can we actually channel uh, funds into the things that are actually gonna r- add real value to our society, to things like, you know, whether it's uh, the green transition, decarbonisation, whether it's about local infrastructure, whether it's about public services, all this kind of stuff, the things that we actually need more of. Um, and the potential wins, if you do that correctly, I think could be quite significant, not just in terms of tackling the housing crisis, but at the same time, uh, allowing other parts of the economy that should that should be
0: perhaps been held back, to start to flourish. Do you see a Conservative government, a UK government, taking any of these steps that you have outlined? I don't,
2: because they, their vote 100% depends on it, and they're fully aware of that. And what there about was, a, the
0: Scottish government?
2: Well, uh, it's a more interesting question. I think there's, there's more potential uh, to make some progress there. Um, the Conservative Party across the UK is increasingly dependent on um, older voters, often retired, very, very high proportions of home home ownership, um, and they are very hostile towards uh, things like social housing because they know that it uh, it it creates the sort of uh, it doesn't it doesn't make people vote conservative. And there was a classic quote actually from Nick Clegg when he was in uh, government when he said in the coalition government, and he said afterwards that George Osborne would always say to him, "Why are you in favour of social housing? All it does is create Labour voters." So the Tories are very, very aware about how the property relations of the domestic environment affect people's voting patterns. In Scotland, it's slightly different. Of course, we have, a, a, a you know, the SNP has a very quite a broad coalition of support. It's not just relying on, you know, elderly or older homeowners. Um, and so I think the conversation about how we can have a more, a more sort of, yeah, a more constructive discussion about solving the housing crisis, there's much more potential. Uh, here at the moment and we've seen some you know we have seen some progress like I said we are building more social housing we are at least talking about things like rent controls we have talked about uh, tax reform it's just the council tax they've then decided not to do anything about it uh, which is a shame but I think uh, you know the UK government is often introducing schemes like help to buy or the recent mortgage guarantee scheme all of which is just designed to keep the show on the road for as long as possible you know to keep keep this sort of uh, feedback loop going into the property market, because when houses are get house prices are getting higher and higher, more detached from incomes, the government's coming up with ever, ever increasingly more innovative ways to keep that show on the road. And, 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 and I think we'll continue to see this from this conservative government because they've got absolutely no interest in this coming to an end. Um, But in Scotland, we're still going to be impacted by that because lots of these powers are reserved. But there is much more we can be doing in the meantime.
1: I, I read here in the local press as well that there's something like 500 million worth of property in Aberdeen lying empty. And I do wonder sometimes if some of it is just going to fall into so much disrepair that eventually it will no longer be an asset for anyone because perhaps the owner um, has died, it's been passed on to a child, a nephew, et cetera, and they don't have the money to do anything with it. And eventually it won't be an asset at all.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think there's a real risk, particularly somewhere like Aberdeen, um, which has been so, you know, its prosperity has been very much rooted on a single commodity, i.e. oil and gas. And we know where this leads because we only need to look at uh, the various towns up and down Scotland and the rest of the UK that were former mining towns that, you know, were were there the prosperity was there because of the mining? As soon as the pits closed, without any proactive strategy from the government, um, you know, they they fell into to to to, to basically decline. And uh, and you have many places. You know, we hear all this. The the, the dominant narrative of the housing crisis is that um, you know house prices are rising so much and there's not enough houses. There are many places around the UK ex-mining towns where the problem is there's so many empty houses they can't get people to live there uh because of of you know that like you're saying and i think there is a risk if we're not if we're not careful in scotland that places like aberdeen could go down a similar path and i think that's why slightly separate issue but that's why we need to be you know very much talking about you know just transition and all the rest of it to make sure that proactively steering the the economy of the northeast you know away from fossil fuels and oil and gas and actually using these skills in in other ways that are still going to be beneficial to, to to the local
0: economy well, that feeds beautifully into the next area that I want to speak about, which was land and also in the transition to a green economy. Now, how we use the land is going to be fundamentally important to how we transition to a green economy. Um, what impact do you think it will have on the green transition to a green economy and that so much private land is held in Scotland? Yeah, I mean, this is
2: going to be a really, really important uh, issue. I mean, clearly... Land is going to be absolutely vital. Land use uh, is going to be absolutely vital in any any decarbonisation strategy. And the problem in Scotland, of course, is that we do have one of the most concentrated patterns of land ownership anywhere in the world. You know, a little less than, I think, 500 people own about half of it. Um, and so what we actually need to do with that land is the, the, the control over that is very, very much concentrated in a handful of wealthy, not normally often men, uh, some of them who obviously don't don't even live in Scotland, and so I think for me, um, there is a real risk here actually, which is that for for many years, centuries, often uh, these landlords have been able to to profit from the ownership of Scotland's common land by by not doing very much. And I think there's a real risk with the environmental. Um, one one variant of how we address the environmental crisis is that, oh, we actually start subsidising landowners to start doing things like planting trees or you know rewilding or all this kind of stuff so i'm all in favor of planting trees and rewilding but if we're for seriously saying well with we, the way to do that is to pay you know these these private landlords who've been profiting for years you know off the backs of uh you know of of of, of the people um and now that now they're going to profit in a different way now because we're going to say well yeah we'll, okay we'll, we'll pay you to you know do these all these environmental sort of public goods, and so again, it's a very, it's a very more I think morally not right, but also economically not very efficient. And so I do think that the question of land ownership in Scotland uh, is absolutely a vital one for a whole bunch of reasons: for you know democracy, for accountability, for for justice, but increasingly uh, also for environmental reasons because there are you know there are huge tracts of of, of land in Scotland that absolutely can be put to far better use than, you know, grouse moors or deer stalking, all this kind of stuff that lo- huge tracts of land are used for at the moment, just so that, you know, landlords can make a, we make a quick buck. And so how we actually get to a, a much uh, fairer, more democratic distribution of land ownership in Scotland, I think is a question that sh- I want to see really rising up the agenda in this, this coming parliament. You know, we've made some progress on land reform in Scotland, and that's great. Should be celebrated. It's 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 good, but there's so much more that 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 could and should be done. And again, a lot of this stuff is well within our devolved competencies to do it. Uh, and so I think this Parliament getting that question, particularly given that climate is now rising up the agenda and has risen up the agenda so much, that only adds impetus to to, to 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 an urgent discussion about Scotland's land ownership and and how we can really break the grip of having, you know, huge tracts of land owned by you know a privileged few.
0: I'd agree. It's it's always been important, but it seems to be even more important. I mean, the idea to build on what you'd said there, the idea that the government would give someone who owned vast um vast tracts of peatland money not to not to dig that up is something that we would have issues with. But what is happening in Scotland? I don't know how it's certainly a trend. I don't know how much is happening at the moment, but there is a trend that uh, companies are buying parts of Scotland to plant trees and we've recently had some discussions in the Scottish parliament about this and how it's actually taking away ownership from the community but also having a potentially negative impact because of you know they're just building these kind of mono uh, monoculture uh, tracts of land any thought on how we can make sure that the land that's purchased in Scotland is used to transition to a green economy
2: yeah well i mean there's lots of mechanisms that um that that, that have been talked about that should make it much easier to bring uh, to, to to bring land ownership either into community ownership or to public ownership. Um, so we've got the community right to buy in Scotland. That's that was great, good step forward. Of course, the problem with that is is that when the communities are able to buy it out, they they, they need to buy it at the market price, i.e. the the hugely inflated price that's been inflated through all this stuff that we that we just talked about. Which means that the the, the landlord can then cash out. Uh, you know, and he's quite happy because or often he, he's he been ha- he's quite happy because, you know, he's just made quite a lot of money. And so I think uh, looking at the, the the community right to buy and looking at the compensation uh, framework around that, um, because I don't think it's fair that uh, that, that actually it should be the market price, because uh, the market price is obviously uh been, in, been in dramatically inflated. Um, there's also other mechanisms. So particularly around compulsory sale orders that were talked about before that we haven't seen yet. And also reforming compulsory purchase uh, powers as well uh, to make sure that that the the, that the state can actually purchase land at existing use value rather than what the what the land would be worth were it granted planning permission further down the line. So that's stuff that the mechanisms that we that we can do. Um, But there's also a broader point here, which is on your point about companies buying up land to plant trees. That's absolutely true, and I think. Part of the problem here is because it's the way that companies and the government is looking at the, the net zero transition. When they're saying, actually, this idea that w- what we can do is we can offset, we can have negative emissions as long as we're investing in negative emissions things, then we can continue to pollute. And so you have companies saying, oh, well, you know, I'll plant trees, and that means that I can continue to pollute. And we're seeing this, uh, you know, quite quite a bit. And it's not a realistic solution to the climate crisis uh, at all. You know, the amount where there's a really interesting piece of analysis done by Oxfam recently, which if you look at the amount of trees that would need to be planted, you know, to, to have any any chance of offsetting our current trajectory, you know, there's not enough space in the whole country. Um, And so that's before you get to the sort of biodiversity elements of it, where we just have tracts of land being bought up with, like you say, you know, a very, you know, one, you know, lots of sort of one type of tree, you know, purely as almost a, a sort of marketing exercise for companies so that they can say, oh, well, We've actually offset our carbon with these trees, and actually, tick. You know, we're on our way to net zero. And so, I think actually looking at the the whole net zero framework and and making it clear that, you know, uh, you know, just relying on on removing emissions through things like tree planting and technologies that haven't actually been proven yet is problematic in and of itself. And we really need to be looking at how we actually reduce our our emissions and our and our environmental footprint in the first place. Not trying to then extract
0: it at the back end. Yeah. Well, well, the term is a sink, you know, and uh, currently vegetation acts as a sink. But as everyone knows, with a sink, at some point it overflows, and you know that's what's happened. You can't just keep expecting it to pull down all the carbon from the atmosphere. At some point, you're going to have to start putting less less up there.
2: Massive, absolute no brainer. Both in Scotland, again, and and everywhere, frankly, if we're going to get close to even coming close to tackling. The climate crisis a, a huge program of home retrofitting of energy and energy efficiency installations uh, is absolutely vital that it that it happens soon and it 's a win 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 because not only does it uh, reduce emissions it also reduces household bills for people it also creates lots of jobs for people to do that um, so it 's really something that I think we we could and should be ramping up you know far far faster um, than 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 we are and I know. You know, in Scotland, obviously there's a there's always constraints in the devolved set financial constraints in the devolved settlement that that don't necessarily that wouldn't necessarily exist otherwise. But um, again, I think this is something that we could and should be doing a lot more of
0: in Scotland. Of course, if Scotland was independent, had its own currency then it'd be able to spend much more of that money into the economy to, to do these types. It's Scotland's a currency user, not the currency issuer. So it is limited. It has to a certain budget that it has to keep to. So these things are just beyond um, Scotland because of its role as a currency user and not an issuer. We spoke a little bit about the impact of inflation and the ability to have a home, be able to purchase a home and have somewhere secure to live. But there are a lot of other societal impacts that an uh, increasing in uh, house prices lead to, um, you know, there's a lot of evidence to say that it's around um, o- o- obesity, of um, uh, how many children you have, it has a huge overspill into the economy. Have you got any thoughts on that? Often
2: it's interesting for me because I used to live in London for a while, and then we moved back up. And you know, the, the housing crisis, you know, here is, is 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 really bad. In London, it's just off off the chart. And you know, the circumstances that I was living in in London were just awful. Um, and, you know, many of my peers who have still live down there, you know, they're still, you know, sharing, uh, you know, you know, small flats between lots of people, often getting kicked out, you know, with with not very good reason from landlords, all that kind of stuff. Um, and, yeah, it affects people's decisions to make people's ability to make long term decisions, because, you know, whether it's to, you know, like you say, have kids or anything else you know if if you're in an insecure home environment or or one which um you know is 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 precarious in some ways then um yeah it has it has huge ramifications for 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 all that kind of stuff and that's why i think having uh having making sure that we have secure affordable housing for everyone as a as a human right um is absolutely it should be at the core of any sort of uh vision for the economy um because without that then it's the kind of foundation upon which you know lots of other things flow.
0: We started speaking about productivity and how important that was for any economy to grow. And there's a lot of evidence that suggests that when prices rise, and the people who you need to do things, like a plumber in your house, can't afford to live near you because the house prices are so high. So you end up trying to do stuff that you've got no skills or qualifications for. And this is impacting businesses as well who can't get, you know, and um, uh, personal assistance or any other and um, people into support the business because the prices of of housing is so high. So it has this huge knock on factor, not just on society but on, on the economy, which I find really interesting.
2: Yeah, and one of the sort of most extreme examples of that, I think it was in one of the it was either night Knightsbridge, Knights, or Mayfair in London. So two of the most exclusive, uh, expensive parts of London. Where because house price inflation had just been, you know, so out of control, it obviously attracted investment. Lots of these properties were getting bought up by overseas investors, uh, you know, for 20, 30 million pounds, snapping them up and not really actually living there, just, just getting it purely for the capital gain. And uh, one of these, it's quite a famous street, I can't remember its name, just over the years, restaurants have just started closing round about it, restaurants and shops, because these restaurants and shops rely on the local community to actually use their services. But because the crazy housing situation, the people that were buying them were in it purely for to make money. They weren't even living there. And so the, there wasn't actually money being spent in the local economy. And so, as you say, it then actually has a quite a negative impact on the health of the local community writ large, mm. because, uh, you know, it, it, you know, the money's not, the money's not getting spent.
0: <laughs> well, when we mentioned on Twitter that we were speaking to you, um, people were chipping in and saying, ask about the, um The regulation in terms of buying homes in the United Kingdom. Can anyone just buy a home in the United Kingdom? And people were saying, Well, you can't in Denmark, you can't in Singapore, you can't in Germany, and there was just a list of these countries. Is there any regulations to stop someone buying homes as assets in Scotland or the United Kingdom? Not 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 as not by not by Standard default. No, I mean,
2: anyone, I mean, the UK is, is effectively as close thing as you'll get to as a sort of property owner's paradise. Um, incredibly, incredibly, the, you know, the rules of the rules of the game, if you like, our, our legal system, uh, our whole economic structure over many, many years have basically been designed. To serve the interests of property owners, and so, yeah, I mean, lots of countries would look at look at stuff, and uh, the UK and go, "What? Oh, how is that even allowed?" I mean, you only need to look at the Pandora Papers that were released just uh, last week, the latest tranche of, uh, you know, huge huge amounts of documentation showing all kinds of um, money laundering, tax avoidance type stuff by the global elite. Lots of that is going through the UK property market. You know, um, you, you saw Tony Blair. You know. I think he he he, uh, he bought a bought a property using an offshore entity um, to avoid paying tax, and so yeah, you have these in the UK. You can buy property via an offshore entity that doesn't declare who the beneficial interest is of that, you know, which is just crazy. Which is why why London is such a hotbed for for you know money laundering, one of many reasons. And so yeah, I mean, the, there's lots of things that I think we would. You know, that, that in, in lots of other countries, they would look and they would go, that's crazy. Similarly, with the pattern of land ownership in Scotland, they go, is that, you know, but here we we really, you know, we lots of people don't question it, take it for granted. And I think um, that's
0: something that, that needs to change if we're going to make any progress here. Well, I think a lot of the things that you have highlighted for, for me today is that if Scotland does become independent, there's so many things that we have to change than what currently happens in the United Kingdom. And I think this idea of grandfathering when we become independent, that we start from a position of taking everything that happens in Westminster and then building an economy from there. I said, all of the things that you've discussed today shows that that's probably not the best way for us to tackle uh, a new country if we want it to be progressive.
1: I feel that over the past 40 years and the real drilling in of neoliberalism, that this um, feeling of precarity Um, that has been secreted in our society um, once we were leaving the post-war settlement essentially that people see property as a safe place to keep their money And, and do you think that perhaps if we could create in an independent Scotland somewhere that feels safe then people could for example feel more comfortable about investing their spare money in something that might actually not give them a return?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and again, this comes back to the issue of, of security, which in many ways is the, the opposite of precarity. And so people are rightly concerned about, you know, their future. There are many people who are, who are, you know, struggling to get by today. Even those who are doing OK today are worried about their future and how they're going to get by, you know, in old age. And so, you know, it's perfectly rational for people to, to think about things like that and invest in property. But again, for me, the best way to provide security in old age is to have a, a very decent, robust, State pension system that provides that security there for everyone, uh, without having to worry about whether the house prices are going up or down, or or relying on volatile uh, stock markets to, to provide that. But again, I mean the the, the pension in the UK, the state pension, uh, the link with inflation was broken by Margaret Thatcher, so it was eroded over many 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 years to the point where uh, it's the among the lowest relatively in the uh, among advanced economies. And that's starting to creep up a tiny bit with the triple lock, but it's still on uh, comparison to to other countries. You know, the state pension is just meagre. It's a measly sum of money that 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 isn't doesn't provide enough of that security. And So people are thinking, well, will I get will I get on the you know one one property, or will I get in the buy to let market? Will I do this and that? You know, will I we, you know will I invest in in these other things? And having that security, uh, that security of knowledge that uh, in old age should be provided for. Ideally, with care, care, which is a whole other issue as well, which we won't get into, that kind of stuff. It does free up people to think about, well, actually, how can I, yeah, what 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 else can I do today? Creative things, you know, get involved in the community, all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, having that financial security, uh, you know, is really a, a sort of a bedrock, I think, for, for unlocking people's potential. And sadly, that uh, I think in recent decades, we've put people in more precarious positions, which... Uh, basically, uh, you know,
0: contains and 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 deprives people from reaching their potential. Wow. Almost everything that we've done since the eighties seems to have been to create this perfect storm with house price inflation, and as you said, the whole economy has been geared towards landowner, and at some point. Uh, this has got to come home to roost. And and I hope that when we're talking about and looking forward and planning an independent Scotland, we realise that we've got to take a different route from what's been been the route of the the Westminster government. Well, Laurie, it's been amazing having you on. You've given us so much stuff around housing and land, and we're really grateful for that. So thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Oh, I'll just bring Kieran back on. There you are again. Hi. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, any any thoughts or your summary of what was an incredibly in depth and detailed forty five minutes? They are covering land and housing. Um, what's your thoughts?
1: Yeah, a a couple of things. Right at the the start, the myth of bank lending and how money is simply double-entry bookkeeping, um, both uh, bank broad money and central bank base money. You know, you could see that when the, uh, the gold standard was dropped in 1971, that the banks would eventually see that they could do the same thing as the central bank was doing, you know. Um, because money is obviously not backed by a precious metal and hasn't been since 1971. Um, and the other thing right at the end um, that was really interesting were, was that loss to society through precarity. Um, so we not only have a loss of productivity where no nothing really useful is being made or some not as many things as could be, and also... Um, you know, just how that precarity is really having a very negative effect on our society.
0: Yeah, we had, we had some really good comments on the chat there and I think it is just, I'm trying to say to people that when we have these discussions about housing and land, it's not just about homeowner, homeowners, renting, mortgages, there's so much of a spillover uh, into society and I really like Laurie's point about... Um, you can see a little fly in my hair there. Um, at Laurie's point about pensions. And I think, again, too often we don't think about um, what people are putting their money into. And really pensions, a much stronger pension, is much more likely to move people away from seeing a home as an asset. But at the moment, when it's such a meagre pension in the United Kingdom, I think it's the lowest in the, 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 the G20, um, then... This has to be an option for people and you can't criticise anyone for looking at, at their home or even other people's homes as a way to secure the future because there's not many other ways to do it. And as you said there, if you don't have a really secure job, then again, you're looking at something much more secure, which is housing. So um, again, on the chat, we had a lot of issues around supply build more houses, take land from this person, you know, build some more houses there. Uh, but this is all the supply side. And I just kind of wanted to highlight what Laurie said. He said, yeah, it's great. But there's 25 million homes in the UK. So to have a, to have an impact on the prices, you've got to add a couple of million homes. And that's going to take decades to build. So we've got to start looking at the demand side uh, rather than just the supply side, so some really, really good comments in the chat. Thanks for, for them and, uh, and, and keep them coming. Uh, any
1: other thoughts or final thoughts, Karen? Um Yeah, it, I, th- I, th- I just think you you made a really good point. You know, there's there's just this route that we've gone down for the past forty years or so. There's just no added value, and it's not to say that there isn't any at all, but it's just those added value has just been negated by this uh, course. Which the UK government has has followed.
0: Yeah, your point about the kind of financialisation that people are leaving really good jobs and research or industry to go and set up so that they can earn money from a, a, a profession that adds no value to the economy. I think is really, really, um, a, a really good way to look at. This. As I said, these issues are much more than just the price of the house.
1: Yeah, I I mean, I had read about that and then I actually sat down with someone a few months later who was actually an example of that, you know, someone who was doing a PhD and they left that PhD. They could have been cured in all kinds of brain cancers. Um, but no, they decided to set up a business to clean Airbnb flats instead because yeah, it was yeah. better paid. And,
0: and, you know, and as we say, absolutely no, you know, you can't have any issues or, or problems with people that we, we, who do that. We've really got to try and construct a, a society where people don't feel that like they're forced to do that. And um, so that they've got some kind of future um, a secure future to look forward to. Well, um, what I'm looking forward to see what I did there is the next episode of Scotonomics and it's Scotonomics episode 12 and it's not in 2 weeks time it's in a week so you don't have to wait as long for the next one and um, we've got a really really interesting conversation with him, um, Claudia Sam um so famous is Claudia Sam that there's the Sam rule so once you're done here have a little google and see what the Sam rule is at uh, the Sam rule is and we're really lucky to have a conversation it uh, Sam was um i think she was um she was um a former section chief former section chief at the Fed. Um, and we've we've got loads of questions about the Fed and, and central banks, so that's really, really good. Um and then the following week starts our COP our Road to COP twenty six series. And um did you notice that Ben Franta was in the news today? Karen. I didn't. Yeah, so we're interviewing Ben Franta, and we had a wonderful conversation with him last week. Um, he wrote a, a, a paper which was entitled um, uh, weaponizing, um Big Oil Delay and Climate Delay and Denial. And he's actually just co-authored a similar report which looked into the French company Total, and it was just launched today. So there's been a lot of press coverage on that. Um, and it was... Um, Total knew burning its oil caused climate change way back in 1971, but they remained publicly silent till 1988. Then they started to promote doubt. Then in the 90s, they opposed any kind of control over fossil fuels. So we are really lucky to have an episode with Ben uh, next week. And he also mentions uh, one of our favourite people, um, Sir Ian Wood, who was in the news again this week uh, being asked what his opinion was was on uh, carbon capture because obviously he's an expert on carbon capture because he's a oil tycoon so of course he would know about all these other things nothing to do with exploration or drilling of, of fossil fuels
1: yeah I, I, I i'm looking forward to that interview with ben and i'll be looking to that paper now that you've told me about it
0: yeah, it's really good. It's it's similar to the one that he did in he, he did in the states. Um, Alex Thompson from um, Channel Four News um, had a few tweets. You can find it there. Uh, well, that's us done our hour um, tonight. I hope you've enjoyed the show, and we think that housing and land are crucial areas for us to look at as we try and plan a new Scotland. But certainly, we want to push you towards this understanding of the importance of a Scottish currency. And monetary sovereignty. Well, that's enough f- from me um, for tonight. Um, Karen, take it easy, and everyone at home. I'll see you soon. Good
1: night, everyone.